leaden winter would bring you down forever But you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are, Bill. I am actually, we are not in the bunker. Uh, I am actually at my in-law's place in Michigan. Yes, and I'm looking out the window of my home office, which is lovely green. So, always good. It's a lovely day here in Ann Arbor. I, I went to a great used bookshop. I bought several books. Good. One, one of which is a book about uh Fra- about uh Franz Rosenzweig about basically an annotated book about his life mostly based on his own letters and journals. Wow, how interesting. Well, I had an interesting thing happen to me that doesn't happen to you every day. I went back uh to Chambersburg, was spent uh did some spent some time with my parents, helped them out doing some stuff. They live in uh yeah, Chambersburg, which is south central Pennsylvania. And as I was making a right-hand turn to go uh, back roads to get on Route 81, a horse and buggy did a did, pulled out in front of me, did a cut in front of me, like a, made a made they're making a left-hand turn as I was making a right. And uh, if I had not been paying attention, um, my car would have been damaged. But I have a feeling that the horse and the buggy would have not done so well. So it's pretty wild. That doesn't happen all the time. It's like it was like a Philly driver, only they were in a in a horse and buggy. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you survived that and are no worse to wear. No, and I'm glad the horse and the uh, and the fine young Mennonite boy survived as well. You know, Greg Strawbridge, our friend from Lancaster, tells me he see he he's like sent me pictures of Amish people in the Apple Store in the mall in Lancaster. So. Things you only see in Lancaster County. Right, right. Very good. All right. So my, I, I suggested this topic inspired by your uh, interview uh, on your new podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, give and take, I had the chance to talk with Molly Worthen, who is a historian. She works, she teaches at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And she's a regular contributor to a lot of place, uh, periodicals, including the New York Times. Yeah, and, and by and the way, uh, you should t- check out Scott's new podcast, his new old podcast, Give and Take. He's you're a fine interviewer, and I just don't say that because we are uh, co-conspirators on this podcast. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> it's fun. And Molly, you know, I mean, she is not, uh, you know, an evangelical, and, I, and she would not self-identify, I think, as a, a Christian at all. But she she is a great religious American religious historian, especially in the history of ideas and. You know, she's a very, she's someone, she's someone who is poignant, you know, at this time because of the way evangelicals have shaped the political landscape and the interactions with Donald Trump and things like that. Um, It's very, she's very timely. Yeah, she is. By the way, I'm, you're cutting in and out of me a little bit, so I'm I'm probably, I'm sure Zencaster is picking it up, but uh, they do have the internet in Michigan, right? They do. We do have the internet here. It is... (laughs) We do have the internet. Yeah, it is. It is fully functional. What? What? what yeah, like I'm here in the backwaters of Bucks County, like I'm uh, somewhere. Uh, uh, oh yeah, you know, we, we're uh, a little. Fr- what's that? 
I said, like, I'm in the most progressive place of the world here in uh, my corner of Bucks County. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Bucks County is is the is the hot hub, the metropolitan, cosmopolitan hub of Greater Philadelphia. There absolutely. it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think she's. I I think she was has really good insights. And you know, one of the things that, um, and she, you know, I before we start, I told you she really, to me, builds on the work of uh, George Marston. A really fine. Uh, is he still alive? I think he is. Yeah, Marston's still alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, really first rate. One of the best uh, Americanist uh, who church historian around. And I really think her insights seem to me to build on you know some of his formative work that he did on American fundamentalism and the birth of evangelicalism and any of the modernist fundamentalist uh, controversy. And really, what what really makes up the thought world of the breadth of Protestant Christianity right now in America. And uh, a lot of our culture wars and a lot of our divisions really, you know, they start in that time period, but she actually traces them back, you know, back to Reformation and and beyond. Yeah. And she just wrote this piece called The Evangelical Roots of Our Post-Truth Society for the New York Times. And in it, um, she talks about uh, the evangelical worldview and how basically conservative evangelicals, um, she says conservative evangelicals are not the only ones who think that an authority trusted by the other side is probably lying, but they believe that their own authority, the errant Bible is both su- supernatural and scientifically sound. And this conviction gives that natural human aversion to unwelcome facts, a special power on the right. And then she develops from there, talks about the whole nature of the Christian worldview and different evangelical institutions and how actually that contributes, she thinks, in some unwitting ways. I mean, they wouldn't want to say, you know, most evangelicals are, are people who have traditionally kind of decried the specter of relativism and, and postmodernity and things like that. But she kind of argues that maybe they unwittingly contribute to it. Absolutely. You know, the spiritual but religious people are really evangelicals who haven't been, who are not born again. I mean, they really, <laughs> they really do. They talk about, um, they, they really talk about their faith in a very similar individualistic way. I mean, uh, and this is, Marston talks about this and, and she does as well, but there's always been a kind of anti-intellectualism on one level in American uh, religious life and anti-authoritarianism. Um, we as a culture have always had a libertarian individualistic spirit, and that really shows up in in lots of different ways in the religious life, uh, both on the you know progressive and evangelical side of things. But uh, I love that one thing that, that you know you pulled it out too. Uh, what did she uh, mega church evangelical warlords? That that's that, <laughs> that's a great quote that she she said yeah, in your yeah, interview. Yeah, evangelical. Yeah. Yeah, she what said. Yeah, because she was saying how, the, uh, how maybe that you know one of the reasons pe- evangelicals are comfortable with Trump, some of them anyway, is that uh, you know they're used to these mega evangelical mega church warlords, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of run, run, you know. And she said you can't really evangelicalism is sort of almost inherent to it is not having a healthy ecclesiology. <laughs> Right, and you know, but they do function that way. You know, they do function that way, and and uh, and because there's no center, there there is no. I mean, theoretically, Christ is the center, and for some people, an inerrant biblical text is the center. But the the truth of the matter is, there's no center because everyone selectively uh, kind of picks and chooses what they want to take a stand on. That's part of why uh, I think we don't 
say this may be clear enough, but there, the myth of a Christian worldview, and you see it like in the homeschool movement, you see it sometimes when in like people call themselves a, a, a Christian counseling philosophy. Uh, you know, you certainly see it in the whole uh, creating an alternative science. It's really alternative facts in terms of the young earth creationist. And I mean, when I, I remember being in Texas right after seminary and a lot of these mega Baptist churches and Church of Christ, and even some of the mainline churches did it. I mean, there was Christian aerobics. You, they had some of them had bowling alleys. They had their own athletic leagues. You know, they had really created an insular kind of world where you didn't have to do anything that didn't have Christian, you know, as an adjective in front of it. But the fact that people act as if there is a Christian worldview, whatever you're talking about, whether you're talking about women, whether you're talking about sexuality. Whether you're talking about politics, whether you're talking about uh, personality theory by which you do counseling, it's just a myth. I mean, there are Christian worldviews, there are people that have constructed them, but to, to have kind of an exclusive claim that these things that they call Christian worldviews are really a mixture of a lot of different things uh, that are really, um, many of them are more contemporary, like Scottish realism. Um, a lot of really contemporary Christian family values are really second century pagan Roman values. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's, it's it's just this kind of exclusive claim about a, a Christian worldview is just a myth. And sometimes it actually uh, promotes things that are, uh, almost antichrist are certainly harmful to the faith. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, Molly said in the interview that, you know, she talked about presuppositional apologetics, which is a school of defending the faith that says, you know, rather than, uh, on, on something like Thomas Aquinas, who in the five ways tries to come up with arguments that any thinking person, uh, who can reflectively look at the creator order could have subscribed to or evidentialist kind of things, you know, like the evidence demands a ver- verdict sort of stuff. Presuppositionalists tend to say, well, look, we all reason by presuppositions. And unless you take a look at those, then you can't really have the argument. And she says, you know, there is something to this, right? That we all do reason with pre-commitments. We all do have, you, you need dogmas to doubt. Like, you, you know, you need, you need to, you can't doubt everything at once, but you, you can push this to the extreme. So the circularity becomes so extreme and I think that's the, you know, because I would want to say with someone like Karl Barth that the church it needs to, you know, the gospel needs to sort of have its own interiority guide the logic of the way we put together reality. But, but that being said, I mean, Bart was not against borrowing uh, from philosophical resources uh, that were outside the, the church and its traditions. Um and, and or or not traditionally Christian. Even he even said it's permi- permissible now again now and again to do a little hegeling. Um, so that so that's so that's the thing. I mean, I, I think that you can uh, have you can have genuinely Christian presuppositions that you but but that doesn't mean you're close off to uh, other ways of putting things together. And I think what she objects to or she finds problematic is when this sort of like we, well you have your own historical historiography, your own, you know, in science, you're in this, and, and you actually wind up, Christians actually wind up as people that contribute to the erosion of truth in our culture rather than being harbingers of it. Right. They're, they are guilty of the same kind of fragment and fragmentation that they criticize. And, uh, 
and often do it in a way that is even less enlightened than some of those other places. You know, one of the things I think, for instance, um, and I, we've probably talked about this before, but, and I, again, I, I've never heard anyone who, who's found the actual source for this, um, that I, the idea that all truth is God's truth. Um, you know, I've heard Clement of Alexander may have been, uh, Alexandria may have been the source, but I've never, I don't remember ever reading it in him and, and seeing it. But if any of you know the first person to say that, uh, please let us know. Yeah, write in, write, write, write to in, us. Write in, write, or yeah, please do. But um, this idea that, you know, there's a sense where all truth is God's truth, so we, we don't have to... Um, create these bunkers, well, we need a bunker, but we don't have to create an ideological bunker uh, or ideological silos that we can be really generous. I do remember there's, I, I guess, is it maybe in mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis said that once he became a, once he ceased being an atheist, he could become more open-minded. Because when he was an atheist, everybody had to be wrong. But once he started, when he became a theist, he said, I could start being more generous to other people's positions. Yeah. Yeah, he even says it's like a math problem, you know, like that, you know, where you can, you can't, like, you might not get the right sum, but you get a lot of your work is right. And there's sort of some mistake along the way that maybe the sum is wrong, but a lot of the calculations are right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I've, I've told this story before, but someone was getting ready to have a surgery and they were so thrilled to know that their doctor was a Christian. And, and I said, well, that, that doesn't really matter to me. They go, why? What do you want? I go, I want them to be first at their class. I want them to have a highest rating. I want them to be the doctor that other doctors go to. Now, don't yeah, get that's me- like, like like Luther said. I'd rather have a. I'd rather be operated on by a, a Turkish surgeon than a Christian butcher. <laughs> <laughs> but again, don't get me wrong. I, I I've been moved, and it can be very. It can be a very powerful ministry to people in in vulnerable and tragic times to have a physician of faith. Uh, there's a kind of comfort. I, I've seen really powerful things, though. So I, I have many friends who are, uh, who are doctors, who are people of faith, and and uh, I know that they pray for their patients. I think that's a powerful thing. But it's kind of this a priori kind of f- feeling that oh my, this is you know this makes it better. Uh, I, I don't think we really, if you stop and thought about, it, we don't think that. You know, one of my biggest. Uh, things that I, drives me crazy is the whole Christian counseling movement. Now let me start say be very careful here. I often, almost everywhere I've ever been, have found have found and worked with really good first rate therapists who are people of faith because um, there are there is a, there is a, a certain anti uh, Christianity anti religious bent in some of the psych in many of the psychological and psychi- psychiatric community. Not all of it, but there's a lot about. That whole worldview that's anti-religion, and it goes back from to Freud, uh, um, and of course Jung's a corrective. But this whole kind of strange, um, you know, counseling people, calling themselves counselors, and then working from some, this biblical framework and giving them Bible verses, I've seen so much damage done by that. And I'm not saying there may be some really trained clinicians who do that, and certainly when I'm counseling people in my pastoral role and I, and I do a lot of that uh, you know I am not a, I'm not <laughs> I'm certainly not against giving Bible verses and, and biblical principles but I've seen a lot of things done where they just don't practice good psychological theory and there's there is uh, there are pre sets of values and notions that actually can get in a therapeutic way with people again I think um, 
some of the best therapists and that I know and people that I refer that I refer people to. Um, they're, it's not because of their faith that I refer them, and some of them are not Christians, some of them are, but it's because I know that they're going to be a good guide for this person. So this this kind of strange worldview that has all kinds of different origins to it, uh, that's sometimes called the Christian worldview to me, is problematic on a lot of different levels, though my faith certainly informs every way I think. So it, 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 I'm, I hope the nuance, people can get the nuance, because I, I'm certainly not speaking against letting your Christianity influence every part of your life. Of course, I'm against particular people saying this is a Christian, this is the Christian worldview. Yeah, Frank Lake, in the beginning of his clinical theology, says basically that he has like one methodological paragraph in like an 1100-page book. And basically he says about the ultimate meaning, if there's ultimate final meaning outside of Jesus Christ as Lord and Redeemer of all. I'm agnostic. Uh, but, but, you know, anybody basically that can stand to analyze and reflect on the depths of the human soul and psyche. And, you know, he talks about all the dynamic schools and Freud and things. He's like, these are all par- partners to the degree they can do that. And, and you know, he is someone that shared a lot of uh, Freud's uh I thought a lot of Freud's observations were right. He just thought he drew the wrong conclusions on a lot of them. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that to me is, is a model of someone who's, you know, who's through, uh, the lens of the gospel is able to mine the depths of depth psychology and other things in, in a way that, and also was generative from theologically too. I mean, that stuff, informed, you know, his, his expansive theology and vice versa. So I think that that's, um, you know, I'm not against, um, I'm not against being unashamedly Christian in, in your presuppositions. Again, it's just, it's when you kind of use that as, 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 and we're not against bunkers. We record in one normally, but when you make an intellectual bunker or silo, I mean, I think, by the way, the other thing that that bothers me when you were saying about the physician thing, that's funny what people say like about Texas Hold'em, like, what's your favorite starter hand? Pocket Aces, the best one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I really love Jack Nine. Why do you like that? You have that, that, that you don't have as good. <laughs> My favorite starting hand is the best one, statistically, that you have the chance to win with. Yeah. Like, why would you have another favorite starter hand? Yeah, you know, and I think um, it, this actually. Uh, to me is why I think both of us are so attracted to Halleck, uh, Thomas Halleck, is because he's not in. A, he, if anyone should be in a defensive position, it's a person who had to be ordained secretly because he was in a communist country, the Czech Republic. He's a priest in a and a professor at university, who in a country that's what ninety five percent atheist or you know ninety two percent non religious or something yeah. like that. But he is one of the most intellectually generous people I know. Matter of fact, his mentor teacher, who in a lot of ways inspired this latest book about love, he was, you know, in a concentration camp by the Nazis during World War II. And then he ended up being in a work labor camp under the communist um, and was work, was exposed to radiation, was like working in the radiation mines and things like that. And his work was based on the power of the love of God. So, I, I, it's hard to me if if, lo, if the love of God and the redemption of the world in Christ is your central 
message, if the revelation of God in Christ and all that in, encompasses is what you believe, then I don't understand how you can be comfortable and narrow and and defensive and uh, sometimes downright ang- angry um, defensive positions that, that fail to understand uh, that God is quite alive and well. And... Uh, and for God so loved the world, didn't he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. You know, it's, it's the verse evangelicals know. It is the verse that we all, the first one we memorize. I could memorize John 3.16 before I could read. And actually, I really do believe it. Um, so maybe we should just kind of live it. Yeah, and I think like we forget, too, that the church, uh, when it usually, it's reborn, uh, you know, in, in, in generations when actually... It does appropriate things. You know, when Augustine writes something like the city of God and comes up with a Christian historiography that that is the product of his studying of Greco-Roman thought and religious thinkers like Varro and people like that. Or it's when Aquinas takes Aristotelianism, which the first presuppositions, you know, of, of which thought people thought doomed Christianity, and Aquinas baptizes it. And, and, and it becomes the wellspring for a renewal of Christian thought. And, 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 you know, again, we could argue the same thing with people like Karl Barth in the modern period. And again, I, I, we and I have talked about it before in the podcast. I think Halik is another one who, as far as his learning from atheist thinkers and also his sort of psychological and historical sensibilities, there's a real potential for the renewal of Christian faith and thought, not for its withering and traditions that can't do that die. I mean, that's how yeah. traditions die when they can no longer absorb the world and explain it and make sense of it and help people make meaning. They, they, that's why people don't generally worship like Odin or Zeus anymore because those <laughs> traditions don't have the power to make sense. Of. It's why people, it's why there are still Buddhists who you've been teaching preaching and, and, and why there are some Christians <laughs> and Jews, you know, and Muslims that these traditions have not lost the power to do that. Yeah. You know, I was uh, talking to a person the other day and this person grew up in a pretty secular, very educated, um, home uh, and came to faith kind of relatively late as as an adult. And this person said to me, which I thought was fascinating, that, um, and, and, and they go to an Episcopal church and they said, you know, I find that the Christians I'm around are much more open-minded than many of the secular and anti-religious people or those, the secular people that I often interact with. And to me, that what a powerful, I mean, that was part of what converted this person because they really saw open, caring, and some intellectual honesty among the Christians that this person interacted with. And I think, to me, that what a powerful opportunity to be different in this day and age, to be able to be open. Uh, you know, I remember one time, uh, having a person uh, who was an atheist said they were an atheist, and and he wanted he kept talking to me about all the problems you have with what Christians believe, and I kept going, well, I don't believe that, and they kept giving me lists, well, I don't believe that. He goes, well, you know, people say God, and I go, I I don't believe that, and finally, uh, you know, the person was so was so frustrated because a lot of what they were angry about about Christians had nothing to do with what I think inherently has to do with the faith. It's kind of like. Uh, Rowan Williams, when he read uh, Hawking's book, his response was, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
So, Bill, I want to conclude with this passage that I think it's relevant, but I was at this great bookstore called the Don Treader Bookshop in Ann Arbor, which is just an amazing used bookstore, and picked up this book on Rosenzweig I mentioned. And in it, Rosenzweig is in a letter exchange with somebody talking about Christianity and Judaism. Of course, Rosenzweig was a great, one of the great um, 20th century Jewish philosophers. Yes, very much so, yeah. He said that, um, that that connection of the innermost heart with God, which the heathen can only reach through Jesus, is something the Jew already possesses, provided that his Judaism is not withheld from him by force. He possesses it by nature through having been born one of the chosen people. A Christian need only be a Christian to be at the same time a missionary. By this, I don't mean the Christianity of the registrar's office. Just as a Jew only needs to be a Jew to arouse a Christian's Christianity if he has forgotten it. Here again, I am not speaking of the Judaism of the registrar's office. <laughs> That's great. And um, yeah, may uh, the tribe of those like Rosenzweig increase. Amen. Just the-